Hi, Derek. Hey, Tim. So first one, how much gospel parallel or gospel parable do you see throughout the whole series? The whole thing. I don't know to pick out specific moments or things like that, but there's this grand, much in the same way that the gospel story is a grand narrative through the entirety of scripture, you know, Genesis mm-hmm. to Revelation and beyond. You see that same thing in the whole Tolkien legendarium. So all the way from the Silmarillion and like the creation story of that world and then through The Hobbit and then through The Lord of the Rings. So it's not so much, I think, about just the trilogy, which I totally meant to like go back and flip through the books a little bit before this because you always need to re-familiarize with characters, um, which we need to do the same thing with scripture. But I didn't do that. So unfortunately, all that I'm picturing in my mind are the movies which are great, but they fall short a little bit. Um, like there's tons of characters that are left out. Like I was just, just a little bit ago, I was looking up strong women of Middle Earth. And I instantly discovered that there are women who were not included in the films. Yeah. The, the, the big cry out is Tom Bombadil not yeah. being in the films, who I, I don't know. I loosely want to say, I think, is the, the best representation of the incarnation in the legendarium. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not necessarily a popular opinion. I have a question then about Tom Bombadil. You're saying he's a clearest incarnate or clearest image of the incarnation in these books, but he's completely excluded from the movies. Yes. So would you sit, what would you say if you sat down with Peter Jackson? Would you say, I understand why you did it? Or would you say, I want to tackle you right now and kick you? I just, I would want to understand why he did it. And I, I think I was listening to a podcast by some deeper Tolkien nerds than I, and I think the understanding is he just thought it didn't, he thought it was a side plot, like that Jackson thought it was a side plot from the main narrative of trying to get to Mount Doom. And um, I don't know, I just obviously disagree with that. But, and, and the movie would have ended up being an extra hour and a half long if they would have captured the entirety of that scene from the book. So I guess it was for brevity's sake that they left him out. But. So here's my original spark from listening to Stephen Freeman what he sees with the ring of power is, so we all think we're going to make the world a better place by making, emphasis on the word making, maybe force is another word. We're going to use power over others to bring about our version of good on earth. But the problem is it corrupts our nature in the process and actually kills the good in the world on accident in the process, inevitably. The wrong use of power always does that it dehumanizes us and it harms the world. And that's the temptation, right? So it's Tolkien's vision of the fall. And, and the fall is not something that happened. It's something that's happening and something we're still wrestling with, right? Just like in the Bible, just like in life, maybe a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. So talk to me for a moment about the ring wraiths. Who were they? What happened? And who are they? I would think that ring wraiths are the equivalent of of humanity without God, kind of the, the living dead, you know, kind of just this, the only thing they're after is, is that power. Like that's the, the one thing that they're after. And ultimately they're still serving someone else. And I wonder how, how conscious they are of that. You know, the ultimate goal is get the ring, take it to Sauron, right? I mean, if you want to follow like clear cut good and evil parallels, it'd be like, get the power of humanity, take it to Satan. But are people who are operating under that really totally conscious of the fact that that's who they're working for. So in some way, I think that's what the ring wraiths are like, you know, and I don't, I don't necessarily think of the ring. I get, I agree with father Freeman on that, but um, I think of it a little bit differently as I think of the ring as symbolic of humanity in general, like the ring in and of itself is totally neutral. There's arguments made on both sides 
within the stories to say like, no, the ring is not totally neutral. Yes, it totally is. You know, Gandalf um, seems to be in one sense unaffected by it, but in another sense says, don't ever tempt me with that again. Um, and then you have yeah, Tom he, Bombadil. Which he won't even wild. touch it. Right. Gandalf won't even touch it. He keeps it in paper. He handles it like it's re- radioactive. And mm-hmm. But then Tom Bombadil is totally unaffected by it. He holds it in his hand looks at it, says, hmm, nice, and hands it back. So that's part of where, where I get that whole incarnational thing from. Because Tom Bombadil, in a way, holds humanity in his hand and is not tempted by the brokenness of humanity. People are saying power corrupts. And my thing is power exposes the nature of the one wielding it. Mm-hmm. It magnifies, just like a gun magnifies the will of the one with the gun. If you have a will to do good, a gun becomes a power that you can do good. You can feed your family with a gun or you can shoot up a school. We're in a culture that views power as inherently corrupt and authority as inherently uh, dis- worthy of distrust. Right. Uh, in other words, we're, we're in a culture that somehow imagines that the regular people don't have power, which is a lie. The regular people are terrifyingly powerful. What's scarier, France with a bad king or France murdering everyone with money? I'm terrified of both. So yeah, I, I'm kind of with you on that. The, the ring might be more neutral, but what it does is it magnifies the temptation for misuse of power. You see that with Sam, right? Samwise, when they get mm-hmm. to the mountain, if, if I remember correctly, he picks it up and gives it back to Frodo. That's right. He, he's not trying to steal the ring ever. Right. You know, of course, Frodo by that point has been so corrupted by the ring that he's beginning to, to be completely disoriented Sam is the friend we all want, the friend we all need. Mm-hmm. Sam is in some ways the real hero of the of the oh, of the story. Yeah. And that's I think the parallel there with the gospel narrative is I think Sam pretty closely represents the role of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what I was about to say. He carries him. Come on, guys. If you're watching that and you're not thinking there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, it's like, have you read your book? Right. And I wonder, you know, how much was that totally intentional or, I mean, maybe it didn't have to be, you know, Tolkien was, I don't know, maybe we've, uh, you know, elevated him to some hero status in a lot of ways as, as a Christian to think like he was this super duper Christian, you know, um, maybe he was so faithful and so devout that that just naturally came out. Like he didn't have to try to, you know, weasel these sub stories in there, um, these analogies like they just kind of but well i think we all know that when we try too hard to make connections sometimes when we try too hard it's a wax museum with some real ridiculous looking people in it you know filmmakers talk about story right they're obsessed with story and sometimes people have broken down story and they're like there's five archetypal stories actually there's probably only one only one real story and it's the gospel story Mm. of love lays its life down for the good of someone else and that's what love does. Um, well, if, I mean, if that's yeah. the only true archetypal story, that means the only, the only news in reality is good news. So what's the point just being butthurt all the time? <laughs> <laughs> Let's close it down. I think that's a wrap, man. All right, back to my list. <laughs> Boromir. I love Boromir. I was afraid that these were going to be questions because people talk so much about that. I don't know. I haven't obsessed over Boromir. Uh, I think he's a really, really good expression of wanting the ring of power for your own means to save Gondor, not realizing, dude, it's not going to be what you think. 
it's such a it's such a like a butt kicking moment when he's like shot full of arrows because he sacrifices himself to save the little the little hobbits that he just in a moment of weakness to, uh, you know messed up and I think we all relate to that we relate to your worst moment is not is not really your defining moment and I, I think we also relate to the idea of we hope we hope we have a death like that holy crap don't you wish you had a death like that <laughs> it's like ultimate man shot full of arrows like and that big idiot like was and you're like so what he saved the hobbits man yeah martyred him you know it'd be like if judas came back and did something right we all wish he did we we hate that we like that peter came back but we wish that judas had redemption too don't we all wish that yeah. yeah. And don't you wish like even King Saul would have would have not would have come back and done something right instead of just going insane and hunting out hunting David for the rest of his life? That's just lame. What a dumb ending. Everybody wants good news. Okay, so you you've already referenced Father Freeman. Have you listened to the Almond Soul podcast at all? No, you told me I was supposed to, but I'm naughty and I was like, I can't be bothered. I mean the episodes are like two and three hours long. I mean they get deep, deep in there, like down to they're almost doing like grammatical criticism and like but it's really good i mean they have like a whole three hour episode all about boromir and um check it out i don't know aragorn strider talk to me about him the the true king who knows his family history and because he knows see imagine you're the kid who's like all i come from is um slave owning drug dealing women womanizing jerks and then you get a you get a you get a calling from god to to do some meaningful good in the world and you go now i have a crisis on my hands who the heck am i and who do i like who's gonna am i gonna be like my ancestors i don't i mean i feel like we relate to that yeah for sure and i mean again sticking with the gospel narrative like all the people that jesus called to and said follow me were more or less those people, I mean, we all have broken, dirty backgrounds, you know, somewhere in our family lineage, we're going to run into those things. And then to one degree or another, God calls us to something. And then we have to make a decision of what am I going to enslave myself to in the most positive or negative sense of the word, you know, is it going to be that the history of what used to be or what was, or is it going to be what, what can be or. And then the, the reforging of the sword which is like, so not only by fulfilling his calling is he, is he, not, is he living down his own fears, he's, he's redeeming his family name. He's redeeming his lineage. In, in modern evangelicalism, including my Anabaptism, there's a, there's a kind of enlightenment individualism. And the biblical narrative doesn't have that at all. Think if we wrote the Bible, it wouldn't even have genealogies. To be cut off from the people was to be cut off from God. You know, the whole idea of like bury them in an unmarked grave was just like the worst curse that you could give somebody. You know, what's the worst thing you can do to a false prophet? If you kill him, you might make him a martyr. But if you ignore him, like that's the that's the literal worst thing you can do to a prophet. Yeah, it's all about being remembered. And you see that all throughout the Old Testament is all these memorials like let's set up these rocks over here. That'll remember it, you know, take his bones with you when you leave. So there's always this remember, remember, remember. We have serious evangelical amnesia um, where we've just chosen to forget. I mean, everything that, that Christianity 
blossomed from. I love the Pirates of the Caribbean movies where the one guy says, that is without doubt the worst pirate I have ever heard of. You have. And then, <laughs> yeah, he, but you have, but you have heard of me. Right? <laughs> well, that was pretty, that's actually pretty deep insight because Aragorn and the family history thing, that's, that's big in the, in the New Testament. We find that all over the place. Right. Uh, the jailer, he's not told you're going to get saved. Just you, baby, based on your belief. Yeah. Your whole, you household. Your whole household. You got it. Say it one more time. You and your whole household. When arguments start being made about the idea of infant baptism. Yeah. Um, super unpopular, I think, in Anabaptist circles. Yeah, we died uh, so that we would not do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm glad that we did that. Like, I'm glad, we, I'm glad we were willing to die to say, hold on now. I want Bible, not dead tradition. That's good. What about living tradition? So what did a, a, a Roman household look like? You know what I mean? It would have been a man. It would have been his wife. It would have been servants. It would have been yes. many children. Yes. Um, and on this one guy's profession of faith, the whole house was baptized. That's right. And brought into it. And to me, that even, you know, bears back to like the idea of, you know, for Israel, it was how did, how did children become members of the people of God? It was because their parents raised them into it. That's correct. That's um, correct. And so one of my professors in, in um, seminary said she was so frustrated later in life when she realized that her parents, by not baptizing her as a, as a child, were refusing to name her a Christian. Mm. Ooh. That's heavy. Yeah, and I don't, I don't baptize my children uh, until they come to me and say, I want baptism. Mm. But here's, here's what I think uh, Protestants, sacramental and non-sacramental do. We dedicate our children to the Lord to, and commit to raising them as Christians. And then when they own that faith, we sprinkle them with water or dunk them. Mm. Catholics and sacramentals, they, what they do is they dunk them or sprinkle them at the beginning and name them as Christians. And when they own their faith, they have a public uh, uh, dedication ceremony, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So we both, we just kind of flip the timing of which one's which, you know, and that's my way of making peace with the, <laughs> with the tension there. <laughs> yeah, I see. I mean, I could see that. A little troubling because when I read in my Bible of what a big deal baptism is to God, like I was saying to a, to a young lady just last night, She's wrestling with agonizing fear that maybe she's not in. Maybe she's not in the covenant. Maybe she's not in. And what if she, and maybe she, what if she is, but what if her position is really on slippery ground, then she might lose it or fall out of it. And one of the things I told her to yell at the devil is I'm baptized. Who was that? That's, that's Martin Luther. Yeah. I'm baptized. I, in other words, my, it doesn't matter. My mustard seed has already cast its ballot in favor of Jesus. And then I, well, this is what I told her. I said, you, the, the, the pastor didn't unite me with Christ. And I didn't unite me with Christ through a decision. Read Romans 6, the father. Urgh, none can snatch me out of my hand. My father is greater than all. My father united me with Christ through my baptism. That is my wedding ceremony. I don't care how married you feel. If you've gone through the wedding vows, you're married, you know, and that, I love that. Yeah. So oh, we're way off. We're, we're, okay. That was all under Aragorn. Sauron, the all seeing eye. Let's go back to the, to the Lord of the Rings. Sauron, the all seeing eye in the movies. He's a one dimensional evil 
We don't really know much about him. Do you know what I mean by one dimensional? In real life, bad guys. There's complexity. Yeah. In the movies, the bad guys are the Nazis and we enjoy watching their heads get shot. Yeah. In, In real life, we are the Nazis. The line between good and evil goes through every human heart, not through society. Number one, you should use that sound bite for the opening of this, however you do it. So Lord of the Rings fans, there's two camps. There's either Tolkien fans or just Lord of the Rings fans, right? Lord of the Rings fans exclusively are not going to get the full story. You're not going to get all the complexities. But Tolkien fans will because, um, you know, the background of everything in Middle Earth is laid out in the Silmarillion. So that really lays the groundwork of like the complexity of everything down to like, um, I can't remember what the, like the, the species or the, the type of, of like what, what the wizards are, what Gandalf is. There's like a word for it. I can't remember it. It equates to basically like the angels mm. is basically the, the closest analogy of, of what they are. And you can see like this ability, this like everything starts at this like kind of neutral pace and it's either like, are we going corrupt? Or are we going righteous? Which way are we going here? And um, so I can't entirely answer your question because I only read the Silmarillion once. And in the but book, does Father Freeman's assertion that even Sauron believes he will make the world a better place? Yeah. Yeah. There's that perspective. But what does that look like? You know, mm-hmm. by whose by whose standards? His own standards. Self. It's all focused on self. I know best. I wish we evangelicals would understand that our vision of what the world should look like is not the kingdom of God. Yeah. And loosen our grip on politics significantly. We're right now the first ones to cry religious persecution. (laughs) Meanwhile, theaters and musical artists and sports are all shut down. They're not crying persecution. Like a survey put out in the U.S., the survey was basically who was the most persecuted people group in the United States. All those who answered white evangelical Christian were white evangelical Christians. They feel persecuted. Yeah. Because of reasons, like if they were asked to cite reasons why, because we can't pray in schools, white evangelical Christians feel like they're far more persecuted than minorities, anything else, Muslims, whatever it may be. It's an interesting perspective. But I don't know, maybe, maybe we're a lot like we're the Saurons. We're going to make the world a better place because we know best. What's, what's the weakness of being an Anabaptist is I think we threw out things that were good traditions along with some of the bad traditions. But one of our strengths as Anabaptists is our, our awareness that Jesus is a political leader and that to be baptized is to break allegiance with your national tribal identity and tribal God. We may vote. We, we may be involved in those things. You know, we have the attitude of Paul where he said, given the state and nature of things, the one whose marriage should in some sense live as though he's not, <clears throat> the one who engages in business should not live as though that's ultimate because the, the current state of affairs is very temporary and fleeting, but there is an eternal and unshakable kingdom that we belong to. And that's where our allegiance and security and our emotional energy should be invested. And I feel like when we, when, when we Christians are trying to bring about the good world we seek through political means, we end up hating, despising, dehumanizing our political opponents. And that's true no matter which side or what agenda we're on. Yeah, it's weird. And, you know, the whole like Christian dominionism that goes on in, uh, 
in the United States politically, like just sheerly on the, on the basis of we are Christians means we're entitled to, to control this country, to have conservative leadership to, to this, to that. And um, I don't know it's bizarre in a, I, I don't really understand it. I don't understand when Jesus became a U.S. citizen and I don't understand the whole, you know, like I remember being in seminary and we arrived at the whole citizenship in heaven thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our professor said, what does that mean? What does that mean? And we would go around and say whatever we said. He said, it's interesting that nobody said that means you just go to heaven when you die. Cause a lot of times that's interpreted that way, you know? So, um, you know, when we say I'm a citizen of the United States, doesn't mean I go to the United States when I die. It means I live, I live by that. I live by that culture. I live by those statutes and those laws. I abide by that. And um, I can't so, wait to go to the United States when I die. Can't wait. So yeah, you know, why aren't we doing the same? Why aren't we living by the culture and standards of, of the spiritual of the heavenly? There's a scene in the final movie where everyone kneels before the hobbits when they kneel before Aragorn. And so the hobbits kneel before him too. And he says, my friends, you bow to no one. And then it's, to me, it, I can't, you know, I cry. I just go. And the first time I saw it, this very intense, the most repeated theme from Jesus throughout his teaching seems to be that, that the last will be first. The first shall be last and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and the meek shall inherit the earth. And the ones who weep now will be comforted later. And the ones who laugh now are going to experience, you know, regrets and remorse and sadness later at what they missed out on. And um, I'm watching that and I'm going, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Because they're the ones who resist the misuse of the ring of power and actually sacrifice themselves for the good of everyone instead of imposing their will on everyone. And it's the way of Christ. So in terms of this evangelical political thing that we're discussing, I wish that evangelicals would loosen their grip on the, on the ring of power Mm. and become servants with very, uh, just a lot more humility to, to say, we don't know what will be good for the world. And we're going to trust a sovereign uh, a sovereign God. I'm going to trust that he has a hand in, in the playing out of human history. And I'm going to, we're going to take the role of not imposing our will on the population. Mm-hmm. You know, let's get, let's get busy being meek and humble and kind and not judging those outside the fellowship. That kind of triggered in my mind some more nuances about Aragorn. And um, I mean, you look at the lineage of Christ and what's he have in there? Prostitutes, yes. screw ups, yes. um, failed kings, uh, restored kings. Then he's teaching these, you know, first will be last, the last will be first and mm-hmm. standing up for the little people. Um, but Christ having this multifaceted role of king, priest, sacrifice, all of that. I feel like the first movie is the scariest movie. The scene where they're hi- the, the hobbits are hiding under that edge of bush and the, the ring wraith has oh, got yeah. his horse and he calls to the dark things and all the little little insects and bugs go scurrying. Oh man, I think that's probably the scariest thing in the whole. But the second scariest scene in the whole series to me is Galadriel. Oh yeah, that freaks me out every time. Where, where he offers her the ring because he's like, this is too heavy for me. You seem to know what you're doing. And she's like, you're offering me it freely. And then she describes what you're going to get if she takes this ring of power. Yeah. You know, when she says, all shall love me and despair. 
And I'm going, I want to hide under my couch. Yeah. And then she resists the temptation. And she's like, I'll recede and I'm going to go over there. She's, she's relieved. She, she's like, I passed the test. Right. And, and, but we, we don't understand at that point in the story, what is at stake? You readers of the books all knew beforehand, but us first time viewers of the movie who found the book silly. Did you ever have this magic moment when you realized that Led Zeppelin was singing about Lord of the Rings? I don't know, it's just like, and then Gollum, the evil one, like ramble on. Ramble on. Yeah, sing about Lord of the Rings. I did not know that. Go back and read the lyrics. Okay, that's everyone's assignment. If anyone ever watches this. Read the lyrics to Ramble On by Led Zeppelin. The answers are inside. Let's talk about Gollum for a minute because Gollum is receiving, he receives unnatural, long human life. Men in particular seem to be, if we have something that we are working toward, we have something to live for. And when we can't, it's like, just kill me. That's why Gollum was so satisfied to just fall into the lava, right? He got what he wanted and he was done. He jumps, you know, and he's grasping for the ring. He gets it. He's so ecstatic. He's still smiling as he's drowning in molten lava. What's the point after that? Um, But I think that's probably why I think, I mean, even looking at the character of Gollum and that whole idea, if we look at the ring, not necessarily just as power, but as humanity, like who can wield humanity, right? Humanity ultimately belongs to God. That's the greatest gift he can give us is our humanity. And um, so we offer it back to him is what we're supposed to do. Um, but as we try to, to lord our own humanity through things like death denying and trying to extend our life as we can by artificial means or, or whatever it may be, you know, what's the goal? We're trying to grasp something that we just, we can't, we cannot grasp it. Like we cannot own our own humanity without giving it back to God. You know, when I think about Gollum like that, you know, he's trying to, I mean, what purpose does he have for it? He wants no power, I don't think. I mean, what power, what would he do with it? Every one of us relates to Gollum. We have these loves that while they may start innocent, they grow insidious and take us over and warp our nature. And, you know, you can see it real easy in little kids with their devices or their whatever their latest thing is that like my little sister, her, her precious was sugar. Can I have some, can I have some pop? Cause up in Indiana, they call soda pop. So I want pop. Can I have pop? Can I have some pop? And then you'd be like, have you eaten any real food today? Or, or have you just found a way to get corn, corn syrup into your body through mm. various means? You have rings under your eyes. My precious. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's, that's all of us with something. The innocent loves that turn dark and warp us because they don't stay innocent. The, the weirdest thing about Gollum is that he probably has the most innocent desire for the ring. Mm-hmm. Though it could also be the most insidious because he's so self-absorbed. That's why he only talks to himself. Um, but I think Gollum and his love for the ring is sticky and became a meme right away uh, because in real life, we look around and we see so many, oh, that's the person, that person's with their precious right now. That's their precious. What's yeah. his precious? That's his precious. My precious. The reality is it's the same precious for everybody. It's just self-absorbed, self-absorbed, introspective, us 
our humanity, our flesh. Me. It's, it's me. right. It's the same pressures for everybody. It's just how 